Welcome to Design Talk. In this episode, I talk with Anna Brady. Anna has worked as a commercial developer in C and C++, a software designer, architect, mentor, educator, and business owner. I first met Anna in Symantec, the American software security productivity and tools company, headquartered in the IDA Ireland business campus at Ballycoolum Business and Technology Park. We had both worked in the software localization division in the 1990s. This interview took place at the Mullingar Park Hotel on Tuesday the 22nd of August 2023 as part of a collaboration with John Stern and TechArchives.irish. I'm Alan Higgins, you're listening to Design Talk, and I'm delighted to have Anna Brady as my guest today to talk about and reflect upon her life in computing. To start, Anna, can you share some of the key milestones in your career thus far? Perhaps start with your background at UCD, yeah. at Computer Science. So I went into a general science degree. I discovered computer science, and I absolutely loved it. I love programming. I suppose it's worth actually giving credit there to Joe Morris. He was one of the lecturers there at the time, and he did a couple of things that were great. He he told us that if we'd had an Atari or a Commodore or whatever at home, we were at a disadvantage, which actually was very key because, you know, all the lads had those and the girls didn't necessarily have those. Um, he also made us write code on paper. So we had to, we had to write, you know, out our, our algorithms and stuff. And he made us appreciate simplicity, you know, the, the, the value in simplicity and also in thinking things through and not just lashing in and writing stuff. So... You know, there was a great underpinning there to me. I mean, we had other lectures, but his his teaching and how to program was... And I, I know a lot of people who were in that course with me, and they have the similar feeling. You know, when you see a good piece of code, it, it brings you delight. And when you see somebody hacking at something, it fills you with fear and revulsion. So he, he put that into us, um, which was, to me, was a great discipline to have. And just briefly, what was the composition of the class at that time? So... I remember, so if I look back to like my final year, the computer science, the honors computer science, there was down to 30 people, there was probably 10 women and 20 men. So that was actually pretty good because things actually got a lot worse subsequent to that. And that was to do with all those parents buying their kids computers. And it was the boys who used it. The boys came into college, and this is well documented in, 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 in the literature. Um, the boys came into college knowing how to code. The girls didn't know how to code. And they just saw this is a lad's thing. I'm not going to bother. So, um, Yeah. And computer science at UCD, this was the first couple of years of, of it being an, a subject? Yeah, I think so. Um, I know Trinity had it for a little bit longer, but um, th- so I started in 1980 in computer si- in, in, in science. And I don't know how much, I don't know if it was the first year. It, there was, certainly wasn't a lot of people gone ahead of us. Um, it, it was a fairly new subject. And Trinity had had it for longer as an independent degree, I believe. But um, we had it as part of the general science. Not a bad thing because, you know, Growing up here in Mullingar, you wouldn't have known that computer science is something that you could actually do, so you wouldn't have chosen it. So it was kind of good that you had you went into a science degree and this was one of the paths you could take to, to finish. What was your sense of the software industry in Ireland at the time? Was there an industry? There wasn't. I mean, if I think back about the people um, that I graduated with, most of them left um, either to England, and the ones who didn't leave ended up working for um, the civil service, insurance, companies like that. So there wasn't... An independent software industry. There's, you know, you could do software in an insurance company or, or the like, but you certainly weren't, you know, going to work for a startup, um, developing commercial software. Your first uh, job on graduation was in software, wasn't it? It was. So I had been born in America, so I had a U.S. passport. So I was shipped over to the states to work for a company in L.A. And I only lasted there six months. That just that was a very. It's probably not representative of anything because it was a very difficult situation. The company was winding up. I was kind of being assessed, was I suitable? 
for them to bring to the new place. And then I wasn't because I was too chatty or something. I don't know what was. Anyhow, I, I wasn't suitable. Um, I was too inexperienced, you know. They, they, and and the, the way they were building my experience was not great because the, the people, everybody was very, you know, possessive of their knowledge. It was something to do with hardware and software. So I was working on some kind of assembly language program um, there. And the guy who was developing the hardware wasn't telling me how the hardware worked, so I had to figure it out for myself. So that was a bit difficult. It wasn't an ideal situation, and I needed... To, so I, I was there. I arrived in August, and I had to find a new job by December. I did find a new job, and I moved to the Bay Area to work for a company called WordTech Systems, who were doing a database. It was groundbreaking at the time. So you could actually you know, code, did it, so you could do your, your stock control or you could, like the guys who had snap-on tools, had a, they were using it for inventory control, that kind of stuff. So that, that's where I ended up. Um, so WordTech started off as a company, so people were using some kind of word processing software and the guy made keyboards that had the shortcuts written down in them so people could figure out eat more easily. So that was, that was how. But then he met this guy called Charles Cho who was um, in the university in Berkeley and he had the idea about making this executable for this interpreted piece of code. So you know, it would be the same functionality. And we weren't copying it because we were writing the code from scratch, but there was all that danger of, you know, I think there probably were lawsuits and stuff. Um, but we were making something that they could then turn into an executable that they could ship, as opposed to having to buy Ashton Tate's D-Base whenever you got a new product. So that was groundbreaking. So Charles wasn't very old, and he wasn't an experienced programmer, and the rest of the team were similarly young. So there wasn't actually people to teach us anything. Um, now... The guy who became the lead programmer eventually, Randy Sultan is his name, and he was a bit of a genius. Um, he was, I learned a lot from working with him. He, you know, he would just basically keep going until he got it right. He just kind of, and he was my age. Um, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't, but he just had, he was very, very, perfectionist is kind of the word, but kind of not. He just had very high standards. So um, he, was, he was a very smart guy and a very good coder. So we worked really well together because... We, we, you know, occasionally I might be a bit sloppy, but I'd be just hearing his voice saying something was wrong with this. And I was kind of UI and he was more the database back end. So the, the voice would just tell me, OK, you better keep going on until this is right. So, you know, I would. Um, and then we had a few more programmers come on board over the years. And we all worked together really well. Like we were a bunch of young people. We hung out at the weekends. We got really drunk and, you know, did fun things together. So we were a quite tight team. And the QA people were, you know, there with us. There wasn't any kind of a distinction Although if somebody came in, we had a different building for the development and we'd smell aftershave. We'd think, oh, it's a salesperson in the building. <laughs> and they usually wanted to provide us to do something that wasn't possible. So we'd be like, close your doors. We're not going to We know sales would be a very important part of it, but we were you know, young and naive enough to think that sales actually wasn't that important. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so I wasn't really learning from people. We, we were making it up as we went along. And that was, that, 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 that was a bit of a Wild West world. And... You know, like when I started, we basically, I had a computer that had two floppies and you were kind of switching over the, you know, the compiler and, you know, it was, you, you remember those days. So, and one Friday, somebody brought in beer and I had a beer and I wasn't very good at drinking ever. And I deleted one of my floppies, the, you know, the important one that had the code on it. So, I, I mean, I was only a few hours back because there was backups, but, you know, it was like a lesson to me. Beer and programming do not mix. And, you know, you just, you just type something like if you, if you, I think those days if you typed Dell C, C colon, you, you know, that was the whole disk was gone. It wasn't your hard disk, but it was easy enough to do something pretty damaging. 
And, and your route back to Ireland then, and starting at Symantec. Yeah, so um, I was in the States working as a commercial developer in C and C++ for about eight years, and I just decided to come back. I didn't have a job. I didn't. I just packed everything up and, and came. Um, I had been earning, you know, really well there. So when I came back, the agents would tell me, oh, you're, you're earning too much. You'll never earn that much here. And, you know, you're, you're, not, you're not employable almost. There was an element of that. And plus, I'd been living in California. So I came to the agencies wearing board shorts and T-shirts. And they looked at me like, you're not going to wear that to an interview. I'm like, no, but I don't see why I have to wear it to you. I'd go visit my friends in companies, you know, in the insurance companies. And I would be left sitting in the reception because I looked like somebody who was not, you know, well-to-do or... <laughs> professional um, but you know that that was fine that that, that all passed and then um, I briefly worked in Galway for a startup that was doing health and then I got the job with with Symantec and looking back I was a bit of a unicorn because um, I had you know eight years of programming experience in a commercial setting I had done we had done localization of our product and I had done Japanese localization so I'd done double bytes so I ticked all the boxes so um, the interview was basically Tony telling me how great the job was. I, I didn't actually have to do much uh, talking myself. Um, and, you know, at the time, I didn't. I probably could have asked for a lot more money, cause, but I, I, I had no idea how, how rare I was at the time. So I, I got that job, and that, that was grand. But I was the only um, woman working there for, for some time in the localization part of things. Symantec was a big corporate, so um, the pe people I'd worked for, they were subsequently bought by Borland. But it was, you know, when, as long as I worked it, it was a startup. We made money. We were always on the brink of disaster. You know, there was the thing of, if you don't get this code finished, we're going to go under and everybody loses their jobs. There was that kind of pressure. So, so I mean, I'd been through that and I'd worked, I'd worked weekends, I'd worked nights. I basically had no life. And you only get two weeks holidays in America. So eight years of that and I was like, I'm done with that. I want to go to a job where, you know, I get my weekends off and what. So, um, but yeah, I mean, Semantic was a big political like I remember when I started first, there was a guy I was working with and we didn't always see eye time. We had a row one day and it was a bit of shouting. And then I got called in like, to be given out to about this was, a, you know, and the shouting would have happened in WordTech and nobody would have passed any remarks. But, you know, for the corporate world, you didn't you didn't do that. And, you know, it was a lesson for me. I, I had to learn to be more political. And and I was a stroppy, outspoken person that had like a lot of experience. So I probably didn't always do what they expected or what they would have liked me to do from a... But I mean, I made, I made great software, so they had to put up with me. Um, so you started with Semantic, specifically with a localization yes. um, remit. And you ended up developing some of the key tools that Semantic ended up using. Can you tell us a little of the story? Yeah, of yeah. So at that time, if you wanted to um, ship a product, you know, that had different language in it, you, the, the strings, the, the text was all in these RC files. And so you had to get the whole environment over to you so you could compile and execute, you know, you could, you could basically make your, so, you know, it wasn't like now where things go up on the web and it's very easy. You had to actually create this package, this executable package that then went in a disk, that went into the shops, that went to people's um, computers. So when the team developing the base code, the English code, were in the middle of developing, they weren't that interested in getting that whole environment to Ireland so that we could practice you know, creating it and, you know, trying you know, to do ahead of time. So there was a huge lag between um, the shipping of the, the US one and the shipping of the language ones. And of course, there was this thing that we wanted to do a sim ship. We wanted to ship at the same time. So um, the first tool I created was Pebbles, which allowed you to 
go into the, the, the library, one of the executable files, and edit the code in there, edit, edit the strings in there. And that was important because we could actually start work. We could just get a beta version from the US and work on that. Plus, the testing overhead was a lot less because when, when you do that whole compiling and executing to make it, you could go, things could go very wrong. And so you had a much more stringent need to test that if you had created it from the source than if you actually were working on the executable. So Pebbles was the first thing, and it basically allowed people to go into the DLL. And I mean, the engineering was just cutting and pasting strings, really. It wasn't, you know, engineering was a bit of a strong word for it, but that was what they called it. And so it was still a manual task, but we could start way ahead of time and people, you know, could go in and just easily cut and paste. And the other thing about Pebbles was it protected people. So if you were in an RC file, it was a text file, you could do a lot of damage to that if you cut and pasted the wrong thing or you overwrote, you know, a number that said where things were on the screen. Whereas with Pebbles, all you could do was change the text. So there was a safety in there that people, you know, who were working probably, you know, for 16, 17 hours doing this cutting and pasting, which was quite boring, easy to make a mistake, so they weren't so likely to do that. So Pebbles was great, but then, and I don't even know why I called it Pebbles, probably there was something to do with the Flintstones movie at the time, but then, you know, she was a little girl and you know, I kind of liked that imagery. The next tool I created was Utah. Um, Utah basically took a previously translated product, lined up the English and the language, and used that as a database to translate automatically the new product. So the delta between products was maybe like you know, you could maybe have 10%. So you didn't have an awful lot of work to do. But if you had to cut and paste all that from scratch, that was a lot of work. So Utah basically created you something that was 90% translated, depending on how, how much, you know, things had changed. So that was a huge um, productivity gain. It was a huge savings. It was like, I'm sure that they saved millions um, because of that. And it made life really easy for people. And I, I mean, to me, the measure of how good it was, was the engineers would come to me in the pub when they were drunk and tell me how much they loved it. So <laughs> I thought that was a really good measure of, of a good tool. And it was hard to do because I had to actually read a lot of hex. And I was pretty comfortable with assembly language and I was pretty good at reading hex. So, you know, there was a lot of stress because here I was changing these executables with my tools and it was shipping out to millions of people on disks. And if it went wrong, you know, I mean, obviously, we tested the products really well, but there was you know, the chance we've missed something. And these were pretty serious things. They were like your antivirus system or whatever. So, um, but, you know, it seems to have worked. Never heard back there's any problems. But subsequently, um, Windows released an API for all the things that I had put into those. So it got easier for everybody else. But I suppose it's something we were ahead of the curve because for some reason I was able to do, because well, I was a great software designer, I was able to do this to, to basically to figure out what, you know, what the format of those files was at a binary level and open them up, edit them, you know, pull the stuff out of them and use it and edit them. So tell us, um, how did you approach the, the job of design? Were you working on your own, more or less? Um... Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure somebody else told me to do this, um, so it wasn't my idea. But once they had, it was like, if they told me how to do it, that would have taken all the fun out of it. There was no documentation about the format of these libraries or the format of, so I had to um, figure it out for myself. Creating files, changing one or two things, doing binary compares to see what the difference was. But it wasn't like you just, you just took a few binaries and compared them and you just kept, like, kept at it, so it was iterative. To go back to Joe Morris, like, um, you know, we learned to break the problem into small manageable units and write down everything first, you know. So you were doing a lot of thinking about it. And, I know in my head I can kind of make a little video that shows how things work, be it people and processes or be it code. So I'll be doing a lot of that, like I'll be walking around thinking and figuring things out and, you know, try things out. And, you know, it wouldn't always work, but then um, 
when it doesn't work, you try to figure out why it doesn't work. And you know, I've met so many people in, in my life that said, oh, the problem went away. The problems never go away. You have to figure out what the problem was and fix it. Um, if they go away, they've just gone to hide somewhere. So you just kind of kept at it. Like it's, it's an iterative process with something like that. And you know, there wasn't much of a UI. Pebbles had a small UI. Utah had almost no UI. You basically put in three files and the file came out of it and that was it. So you weren't thinking so much about the user interface, which is probably a lot of where software design can, you know, do well or do badly. This this was a pretty easy design to do um, because most of the work was happening under the hood. But you know, you tried to modularize as much as possible. You tried to, you know, do plenty of testing so you found the bugs, you know, before they caused somebody problems in the middle of the night and you got the call. Do you think um, then design is ultimately a process of working alone? There's a solitary aspect to it for sure. Well, it depends on what you're doing. If you're doing something that has a lot of user interface, then you need to work with a lot of people to get that right. Um, for this, you know, my, my customers sat over the, the partition from me. So I would give them a version to try and they'd give me feedback directly. So, you know, that iterative process was really important. And if there was some reason that they couldn't use it or there was, you know, they had an issue with how it was used, then you had to try to figure out what the problem was. But, you know, either it spit out a usable executable file or it didn't. Um, so that was, you know, for, for the Utah one. For Pebbles, there probably was areas where that could, you know, we were iterating in terms of improving that to make it simpler for them. Um, and probably in fairness, the U Utah idea probably came from somebody saying, could you not just find the string somewhere else for me? And it's like, yeah, I can, let me do it. So, <laughs> and I mean, a lot of the great ideas in software come from people listening to their users, I think. Yeah. Pretty much all the good ideas, I think, you know. So while the actual coding is a solitary occupation, um, getting the software to be good absolutely has to be an intimate conversation with the users. Yeah. Um, have you been involved in, or can you talk about your advice to people who'd like to grow from a, a single programmer to a team of two or three or to, to expand their coding capability yeah. in a kind of coherent manner? Yeah, I mean, like that's communication. I think we, we used to get quoted, Edgar Dijkstra, who said, you know, the, the best programmers can communicate really well in their native language. So your team, if you're going to make a team, you have to, you know, get people to gel, get them to talk a lot, um, get them to work really well together because the software won't work really well if the people that are doing it don't really work well together. So, you know, when I was in the States, I was on a team and we did work really well together. We had lots of processes in place that allowed us to, um, you know, communicate and to figure out who did what and to, to find the bugs. And really, um, a lot of the key to a software, and you know, this is something that I think software companies don't necessarily always value, but the people who are finding the bugs, you know, be it in an agile environment or being it in whatever else that you might do, the people who are finding the problems need to be in with the team, working with them, equally valued. Um, so, you know, it's all very well writing code, but if the code doesn't work, then it's no good. So I think that kind of um, interaction, that dance, as it were, between the people who make the stuff and the people who use it has to be happening daily, has to be listened to, has to be valued. And so, yeah, if someone's trying to make a team bigger, I'd say make sure there's a QA person and make sure that they have equal, if not greater, status than the people who write in the code. That might be a little bit heretical, but um, that's my experience. And the notion that the QA people and the people testing should also be coders at some level. Um, is there a path that makes everybody the same or, or do you need to have this distinction? I mean... Is it necessary or unnecessary? Even? I mean, I think there's people who really enjoy finding problems, the people who enjoy writing code. And I'm not necessarily the same people, but it's to do with, you know, who gets to say this is, this is done? 
does the coder say it's done or does the QA person say it's done? If the QA person says it's done, then their status is immediately raised. So it's as simple as that, I, I think. That, 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 does that answer your question? Yeah, I guess it might. Yeah, I think that's, yeah. that's an interesting way of uh, characterizing the, 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 the relationships, perhaps. Yeah, and, and not, not everybody who's doing QA wants to, I mean, some people who do QA eventually want to become coders, and that's fine, but not everybody does. And it's not that, you know, I mean, I don't know if it's a case anymore. I haven't worked in software for a long time, but you know, the coders were like, you know, the heroes. They were like the great people, and everybody else was just kind of like, you know, dross. That, to me, that's, that's a very poor way to look at the teamwork that gets the product out the door and into people's hands. So you, you, your career spans an, a really interesting period of time. You're, when you're coming back in, uh, when you come back to Ireland, mm -hmm. um, it's really at that, uh, uh, that, that inflection point where internet is creeping in. Mm -hmm. So I remember in Semantic, we, we had the first intranet. Web, yeah. intranet. Yeah, I managed that team. And a lot of transitions and changes in the working environment. I, I can't imagine it was a single point in time that it was a stable environment. There was always something changing coming in and reacting to that or... Yeah, but when I look back to when my career started in 84, it was just the start of the PC as well. So we'd gone from these big systems of Unix to systems like that had two hard disks on their, on their desk. So I guess that's my whole life. Things have been changing constantly as long as I've been coding. So to me, that's normal if things are changing. If things stay the same, something's wrong. So, I mean, I, I couldn't say that it, it phased me or that it inspired me or that it, you know, it, that's just how it was. That's, you know, you always have to be on top of the next best thing. What advice would you give to somebody in that environment? What attitude do you need to maintain or openness? You, yeah, you need to be flexible and resilient, I suppose. Um, you're never done, really, are no, you? No, but I mean, so it's that thing about who moved my cheese. Like, if, you're, if you are a person who likes change, then you'll like that. And I know from how I grew up in my family, we, we, we're, we're people who liked, we like to create change. We liked, and I suppose if you're the person making the change, it's much easier than the person who's having to deal with it. A friend said to me, change is opportunity. So, you know, if you look at it that way, everything always changes in the community. And somebody else said to me, you know, if you like where you're sitting, enjoy it, it won't last. If you don't like where you're sitting, it's okay, it won't last. And it was the same for where you're sitting or whatever your job was. That was the kind of, you know, so if, you, if you, things weren't great, you know, it was going to change. And if things were great, enjoy it because it's not going to last. And, you know, if that's the motto that you have for your life, that's not such a bad motto to have because, you know, it makes you very zen about today, but also very easy when the things do come that are going to change. I was going to ask, um, I know you've gone on since to be involved in education yourself, and in particular um, imparting STEM, math, science, technology, engineering, math mm -hmm. skills on mature, mature students in, in that environment. What advice would you have or tips would you give? You know, it's the same as the software. Think about what the user experience is. So if you're teaching people anything or you're trying to give them a piece of software that works think about like put yourself into their shoes put yourself you know your your bum on their seat and think about what are they thinking of when they get it you know if it's education like where are they coming from and you know you may have to ask them to find that out but if you don't start with where they are you're not going to succeed so try to always start with the people are rather than thinking i'm going to teach you about this today well where, where are they now or do they know half of that already can you skip a bunch or do they know nothing and you need to go back a bit further so and the same with user design, like, you know, what does the person need to achieve? You know, if, you, if it's from their perspective at all times, you're going to give them a good experience. If it's from your, if you're going to be arrogant or thinking that you know everything and it's your, you're the pitcher filling up their empty jugs, that's not going to work at all. So um, that'd be, you know, between, I, I taught secondary school 
maths and I've taught, you know, CEOs about business processes. And it's the same thing. It's really, where are they right now? What do they want to get out of it? And how can you help them move along their journey with what you know? When people think about, you know, what we want the user to do, it never works. Like, they, they'll put up instructions to say, do this now. People will always ignore that. You know, even putting signs on doors, say, you know, keep this door closed. Or in the kitchen, make sure you wash the dishes. Just doesn't work. People just don't do what you think they'll do. So how do you figure out what they want and, you know, work with that is, is much more motivating for people. Anna, any final thoughts you'd like to share before you wrap up? No, you've asked great questions and I think that's it. <laughs> Thank you for listening. The music used is Voltaic Fluctuations by Ben Prunty and used with his permission.